know, it's real, I, I say to the staff regularly that it, it's really hard to mess up uh, baptism day. <laughs> it's just, it carries itself. It's uh, all about new life and the amazing stories and testimonies that we hear. And so uh, as our chapel joins us online, the venue and uh, Cactus are kind of doing their own thing today because we all have a different number of baptisms and the timing's all off. But chapel watched some baptisms from last night, maybe even today, and just, just, just an incredible day uh, here at our church. Uh, Neil was correct earlier when he said that, uh, you know, we, this is our favorite day. We look forward to this because of the significance of hearing the stories and what God is doing in people's lives. And uh, so it, it's a great day. I don't even mind the fact that I have to give just a, a slightly shorter sermon uh, because I, you know, the timing is off. And, and, you know, I've maintained for years that sermonettes are for pastorettes. And so I don't like doing uh, shorter sermons at all, even though some of you like it. And, uh, but I'm going to try to stay within our time limit. And, and what I'm going to do today is a little bit different. It's going to seem like this is something we should do almost every Thanksgiving weekend. But I, in 35 years, I've never done this. And that's that I'm going to, I'm going to deliver a Thanksgiving message to you today. And, and, and it's weird as I felt led to do that this past week. I looked into my whole file system on my computer. I did a search of every sermon or message I've ever done. I have never done a sermon on Thanksgiving weekend on Thanksgiving. I'm almost always doing something else. And I thought, well, uh, let's give it a shot. And I think you're going to be blessed. And uh, you're going to like what we talk about here today. And hopefully it'll lift your spirits a bit and get you focused on the right things if it's not already. So let's pray and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for the day that we have here to, to celebrate new life and the stories that we hear of how you have invaded people's lives with your grace and with your truth and with your son Jesus and all that he brings. And so I pray that as we continue in this vein of thankfulness right now, that you might speak to our hearts, each of us individually here in a chapel and online. And then also, Lord, would you speak to us collectively as a church and make us a grateful people, I pray. In Jesus' name, and we say together, Amen. So uh, Thanksgiving has a very rich history uh, in our country. Uh, it, it really does. In fact, as I researched it this week, it goes back hundreds of years. I love the little story of the boy who was asked to write a report on the original Thanksgiving story. You know, the one about the pilgrims. And in trying to write it within our politically correct culture, he wrote this. He said, the pilgrims came here seeking freedom from you know what. And when they landed, they gave thanks to you-know-who, and because of them, we can worship each Sunday you-know-where. <laughs> if you didn't catch it, the answers are religion, God, and church, things that you really shouldn't say in polite society. But most of us know the original Thanksgiving story. Uh, we have a lot of documents, original documents from that time written by William Bradford and people like that that tell us about what happened back then. The pilgrims landed in 1620 on the eastern shores of what is now Massachusetts. 102 people survived the 66-day trip on the Mayflower across the Atlantic Ocean. 
And these were English separatists. They were people who were breaking away from the Church of England at that time to pursue their, their Calvinism and their particular view of God based on the Bible. And the first winter in this new land would be brutal for them. They landed in November of 1620, not very good timing for the East Coast. And as they were building the Plymouth Colony, the snow and the cold and the disease would take the lives of 50 of them over the next few months. And so by the spring of 1621, about 52, half of the pilgrims had survived and half had died. And even the wife of the very first governor, William Bradford, would die. She fell overboard when they were landing here and drowned in the icy waters of the Atlantic. But by, by, by November of 1621, just one year after landing here, let's dial into this, one year after losing half of their loved ones and friends in a brutal winter, they held a three-day feast of thanksgiving along with about 90 Native Americans who they had made peace with. And then two years later in 1623, Governor Bradford would issue the very first Thanksgiving Day proclamation. Let's read it together. You don't need to, to like follow along with me. Just follow along as I read here. It says, Now I, your magistrate, do proclaim that all ye pilgrims with your wives and ye little ones do gather at ye meeting house on ye hill between the hours of 9 and 12 in the daytime on Thursday, November 29th of the year of our Lord, 1623, and the third year since ye pilgrims landed on Pilgrim Rock. And there, listen to your pastor. I like that phrase. There, listen to your pastor and render thanksgiving to ye almighty God for all his blessings, William Bradford. This is the very first Thanksgiving proclamation that would be, that would be for the burgeoning United States. And as most of us know, from this point on, numerous presidents, including Washington, Adams, Madison, and many others, have issued formal Thanksgiving Day proclamations. And it was in 1863 that Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the last Thursday of November should be a national day of, and I quote, thanksgiving and praise to our Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Thanksgiving. A long-standing, don't miss this, spiritual tradition dating back even hundreds of years before the formal establishment of the United States. And I got to tell you, folks, every time I revisit this story, because I was taught this story when I was back in first or second grade, and every time that I revisit it, I am struck by something that continues to blow me away. And it's this, and that is that these original pilgrims obviously did not have an easy go of things, not by any estimation, and yet they somehow remained thankful even to God in the midst of tremendous hardship. I want you to think about these original pilgrims. They fled Europe for fear of persecution. They left their homes, their extended family, their jobs, everything that they knew and loved. Some of you whine 
when you have to move across state lines here within the United States. And I know it's difficult. They say that moving is one of the highest stressors in our lives. Imagine having to leave your country for fear of persecution because of your particular view of Christianity and moving to a land that had not yet been inhabited, at least by Europeans, at that time. And then they had a grueling two-month journey aboard the Mayflower. You know, I look at pictures of the Mayflower today and they make it look so nice. Have you ever noticed those pictures? Can we all understand that two months on the Mayflower was not a Disney cruise back then for them? I mean, I travel, you know, 10 hours on an overnight flight to London every couple of years to go speak over there. When I get off the plane after flying all night in coach, I'm grouchy. And I'll call my wife, and I'm anything but thankful when I land at Heathrow there. Imagine 66 days on the Mayflower, some of your friends dying because of that journey, and you get then to this new land. And when they get to this new land here, half of them die within the first few months. History tells us sometimes two or three of them in one day. And the ones who live suffer immeasurably that first winter. And in the midst of all this, they set aside a holy day to give thanks to, and I quote, Almighty God for all of his blessings. Here's my point. Many people today who do give thanks, and I think it's most of us, do so based on a healthy bank account, Nice jobs, healthy kids, safe neighborhoods, a free country, don't hear me wrong, all good and wonderful things for us to be thankful for, to be sure. But I wonder sometimes, would we still be thankful to God if in our 21st century culture we didn't have all these things in our lives? Here's the big test, gang. What if the bank account is empty? What if the job stinks? What if the kids aren't all that healthy? What if the neighborhood has turned? What if our country is not what it used to be? Hint, hint. The question that I have for you today, based on what our forefathers and foremothers went through when they started this thing called Thanksgiving, is would we, like them, be able to still give thanks? Would we be able to muster up the reserves of faith and give thanks. And if you answer yes, then the question I have for you is how? I mean, most of us, when I hear people give thanks, are thanking God for all his wonderful blessings. We're thanking God for the things that we have in our lives. And again, that's not bad to do. Of course, we should be thankful for modernity and all that we have today. But in the absence of this, can we still give thanks? And if so, how? What did the pilgrims know? that allowed them to be thankful amidst the kind of life that most of us would bemoan and have trouble finding gratefulness within. Well, in answering these questions, uh, we know at the very least that the original pilgrims believed in this book. Anybody know what this book is? Say it with me. It's a Bible. And we know that the pilgrims read and believed in the Bible because, as I said earlier, they were English separatists breaking away from King James and Elizabeth because of the Church of England. And they were pursuing their version of Christianity known as Calvinism. And my simple point is, because many of you don't even understand what all that means, to make that distinction, you have to read the Bible. 
Uh, to make that distinction, you've got to understand what the Bible says about God and salvation and the Christian life. And so we know that these pilgrims were people of the book. And knowing the Bible, they would have almost surely known the quintessential passage in the New Testament on thankfulness. A very simple but profound passage tucked away toward the tail end of the book of 1 Thessalonians, a very potent passage, and it says this. It says, in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let me repeat that. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, believe it or not, this passage, which sounds so simple, has a level of profundity to it that makes it a very, very special passage. At the obvious heart of this passage, the main point, is the imperative here to give thanks. But the richness in this passage, now watch this, is actually found in the bookends of this passage, in the one bookend where it says, in everything, and then the other bookend, which says, this is God's will for you. So it's the beginning of this passage and the end of this passage that actually becomes the meat of how and why we should give thanks. And I believe it's the secret to what allowed the pilgrims to give thanks and what can cause you and I to give thanks even when life stinks. Notice the one bookend. It says, in everything, give thanks. I've done this before with you guys, but I looked up that word everything in the original Greek, and you know what it literally means? Say it with me. Everything. <laughs> it's the Greek word pas, P-A-S, and it means all, everything, total. It's one of the few words in both Greek and English that is an all-encompassing word that is designed not to focus us on something specific, but to take a step back and say we're talking about everything here. Some translations, the NIV and the ESV, actually translate this in all circumstances or in every circumstance give thanks. I think that doesn't do justice to this word because it seems to limit it to circumstances. That's not what this word means. This word goes even beyond circumstances. It's saying in every circumstance, in every thought, in every emotion, in every single aspect of your life, Everything that comes your way 24-7, give thanks. And notice that we're not giving thanks for them, we're giving thanks in them. So God's not like saying give thanks because your car broke or give thanks because the kid is sick or give thanks because the bank account is empty. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in the midst of all of those things, give thanks in everything. Give thanks. And some of you are saying, well, how can you do that? And why would you do that? Well, that's the other bookend. Because the other bookend says, because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, most commentators point out here that this phrase, God's will for you, has a double meaning in this passage. And the meaning is simply this, that it's God's will for you to give thanks. And the reason that you can give thanks is because God's will is operating all the time in your life. You give me a head nod, you understand that. In other words, the, the double meaning is, it's his will you, you, you give thanks, and you can do that because his will can never be thwarted in your life. And what that means 
is that everything that has ever happened to you up to this point and everything that's going to happen to you from this point in life somehow mysteriously and wonderfully is contained within the sovereignty and the providence of God. He is 100% in control of your life. And because of that, because of his will in your life, you can give thanks because it's all covered under his grace. But we know that this is what it means because the experts affirm this. Look at what Leon Morris says in his commentary on Thessalonians on this passage. He says, this conviction of the divine sovereignty and providence leads to the command, give thanks in all circumstances. And then I love how Thomas says that our Thomas, uh, he's even more pointed. He says, no combination of happenings can be termed, termed bad for a Christian because of God's constant superintendence. And he puts bad in quotes because he doesn't mean that there aren't bad things that happen to us, but when we see them through the eyes of God's sovereignty, we realize he's in, in control. Jesus taught us this. He said, not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of God's will. Every hair on your head is numbered. So though it's a mystery that raises a lot of questions, let's not go there right now today. Let's just understand that God is sovereign. He is in control. Everything that happens to us is within his watch care, even the terrible bad things. And we'd want it that way. We still want him in control. So that's a good thing. And as Romans 8.28 then affirms, we know that in all things God works for the good to those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. So the bookends, don't miss this, give us the secret to giving thanks. We do so in everything. No circumstance, issue, emotion, or thought should ever get in the way of us giving thanks. And we can do this based on his sovereign will operating in our lives. Nothing happens that he is not ultimately in control of. Listen, folks. This is the only way the original pilgrims could ever give thanks. If they didn't believe this stuff, we would not have thanksgiving. Because again, go back to that story. The trip was awful. And the first few months as they landed were worse still. And yet their faith was not in a ship. And their faith was not in the land. And their faith was not in the weather or what the future might hold or anything silly like that. It was in God who was providentially in control of their lives. And so good or bad, he was in control and this is where their faith was grounded. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking about Jamie. Man, this is a tall order. I mean, to believe that, I'm just not quite there yet. I'm not sure that I'm a super Christian. I don't have that kind of faith. Well, if that's you here today, then that's honest, and I appreciate your honesty. And so let me wrap up in the few moments that we have remaining before our elder fund offering, and let me share with you three practical biblical tips that have helped me over the years to develop this kind of thankfulness, even in the midst of very difficult times like some of us might be going through now. Here's the first tip. Remember that thankfulness is a choice. It's a choice. I hinted to this earlier in our passage here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. It says, give thanks. And I looked this up in the original Greek this week, and it's in the present active imperative tense 
which is really important to know because if it was in the present active indicative tense, it would have been translated, I do give thanks. That's the indicative tense. It just tells you what you're doing. I do give thanks. But when it's in the imperative tense, that means it's a command. So God is commanding us here to give thanks. And here's my simple point. He would never command you to do something that you couldn't do. God works that way. He doesn't command a Holy Spirit-filled Christian to do something that according to his power, they could not do. And when you're thinking rightly about it, <laughs> we do the same thing in, in our own families. You know, some of us, um, when it comes to this idea of, of thanksgiving, need to to remember when we say that I'm just not there yet, I don't have this strong of a faith, I don't know if I could be like the original pilgrims. You need to understand, you're not saying that you, you can't be like that. You need to revise your vocabulary. What you're saying is that you, you won't be like that. Because you do have a choice and you gotta convince yourself and remember that, that God's given you a choice here. You can choose to be thankful even when life stinks. I, I like the analogy, as I just said a second ago, of the family. Um, you know, it's Christmas time, or we're entering into the Christmas season, and one of the things that we'll do in our family, Kim does this, is she loves to bake Christmas cookies. Maybe some of you do as well. And so our house will be filled with all kinds of Christmas cookies. And I can remember when the kids were younger, you know, there'd be a time where uh, it'd be, you know, get close to dinner time, and they'd come running in and say, Daddy, can we have a Christmas cookie? And, and I'd say, well, you know what, let's not do it now. Let's wait till after, you know, we eat, which is what good parents do. And, 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 and good parents also are really attuned to their children and their house. And so it would not be unusual back then, after I said no, that I'd be sitting there watching TV, because good parents do that too. And I'd be watching TV, and all of a sudden, I, I'd notice it's eerily quiet in the home. And, and I'd go, something's up. So I'd, I'd get up and I'd walk into the other room and sure enough, I'd see a couple of cookie crumbs in the room there. And so I'd follow them, let's say, into my son's room and there would be my son sitting there and the second I look at him, he looks guilty as sin. And so I say, Paul, did you eat a cookie? And, and Paul was always the honest one. Abby would lie to my face, but, but Paul would, would never be able to lie to me and he'd look at me and start to well up and he'd say, yes, I ate a cookie. And I'd say, didn't you hear me say you can't eat a cookie? And he said, yes, I heard you say that. Now imagine in this scenario if Paul said to me, but dad, you don't understand. I couldn't help myself. I'm not like you. I don't have that kind of discipline. And, and my arm just reached into the jar all on its own and it grabbed that cookie and went into my mouth and I, I just couldn't do anything else. Let me ask you, as a good parent, would I accept that excuse or not? Of course not. It might be cute coming from a five-year-old, but I would still say, hey, that was a cute story. Uh, you're going to get punished. I won't say what we do because you're not allowed to do it anymore, but I would say that, you know, that you're going to get punished right now. You see, sometimes that's what we say to God. I mean, I marvel at that. We say to God, well, God, I just can't do that. You know, God says back, hogwash. That's in the margins of the Bible, hogwash. It's a choice. You have a choice as a spirit-filled Christian to obey him or not. And even when you don't feel like it, even when your thoughts are messed up, you can look to God and say, thank you. I'm grateful for the life that you've given me. And the second tip I want to give you kind of follows up on that one because this has also helped me make the choice to be thankful, and that's to realize that things 
could always be worse. Things could always be worse. I, I live this one. Those of you who know me, I, I'm fond of saying when bad things happen to me, and they happen to me often, you know, throughout the week, um, I'm fond of saying, well, if this is the worst thing that happens to me this week, I'm a blessed man. And by the way, I'm going to say that. You mark my words. Hold me accountable. I'm going to say that the day that I get the news that there's something growing inside of me and I'm going to be going home to the Lord in two months. When I get that news, I'm going to say, well, if this is the worst thing that happens to me this week, I'm a blessed man. And the reason that I can say that is because biblically speaking, I believe things could always be worse. Uh, Paul the Apostle is the one who taught me this in one of his very honest book, 2 Corinthians. Paul is sharing about some of his own hardships. Let me share with you what the hardships he writes about in, in Corinthians are. He writes about being beaten, thrown in jail, stranded on the sea, hanging onto driftwood, being abandoned by those closest to him, being ridiculed by his contemporaries as a madman and a fool, suffering from discouragement and profound depression. You know, everyday normal kind of stuff. This is what Paul's struggling with. And about a third of the way through this letter, this is what he writes to his audience, which, by the way, would someday be us. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Essentially, he's saying here, it could always be worse. <laughs> He's saying we're afflicted, but guess what? It could be worse because we're not crushed. We're, we're perplexed, but it could be worse. We're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but hey, it could be a lot worse. We could be forsaken by everybody. We're struck down, but it could be worse because we're not destroyed. He has this mentality that, again, under God's sovereignty, because God is in control of our lives. God was in control of his life. He said, well, things are bad right now. Can I repeat the list? Being beaten, thrown in jail, stranded on the sea, being abandoned by those closest to him, ridiculed by his contemporaries, suffering from discouragement and depression. Things are bad for him right now. But he's saying it could be a lot worse. And you and I need to start thinking that way because we don't. We bemoan, we get into pity parties, we think, well, it couldn't get any worse than this. Yes, it could. And we have evidence that this is exactly how the original pilgrims thought. They really had the mindset, in the midst of their terrible circumstances, eh, things could be worse. And the reason that we know that is that, is that, no, I don't have it on the screen, I'll read it for you right now. The preface to that original Thanksgiving Day proclamation that I shared with you earlier from William Bradford, listen to the preface that he wrote just three years after landing here in what would become America, he says this in preface to the Thanksgiving Day Proclamation. He says, Inasmuch as the Great Father has given us this year an abundant harvest of corn, wheat, peas, beans, squashes, and garden vegetables, and has made the forests to abound with game and the sea with fish and clams, and inasmuch as he has protected us and has spared us from pestilence and disease and has granted us freedom to worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience, he then goes on, I declare this a day of thanksgiving. Now, now guys, put this together. He, he, he's basically saying three years after his wife 
drowned in the ocean as they were landing, as 50 of his friends died that first winter, as they were, were wondering, can they even make it in this new land? He's now saying three years later, well, it could be a lot worse because we have food, we have fish, we aren't bothered by King James and Elizabeth anymore, and we can have the, the freedom of faith that we want that would eventually set the tone for this whole nation. He's basically saying we didn't all die, and so we're here. Let's give thanks. And some of us need to follow suit. And then finally, if none of those do anything for you, let's spiritualize this. <laughs> because the third tip the Bible gives us is that for those who trust in the Lord, hope is always alive. Amen. One of the passages I quote to you guys quite often because I love the visual here and I, I love this psalm, Psalm 30, verse 5. It says, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. You know, that phrase that you and I use today or the world uses, this too shall pass. They stole that from the Bible <laughs> because the Bible affirmed thousands of years ago that though you might be crying right now, hang in there, Christian, because God is good for it, and you're going to get joy again. I write about this in my book that's coming out next year, shameless product placement right there, but I, I, I write about that, how joy comes to those who learn to wait on God. And if you're here today weeping, hang in there, because hope is your ally, and joy is going to come to you. God is always good for it. As I thought this week in my office about Thanksgiving, I, I thought, you know, Thanksgiving really has become a secular holiday. It's all about turkey and football and family, good things to be sure, but it's very secular. It's become a lot like Christmas and Easter. Christmas trees, gifts, eggs, bunnies, you know, all the things that our culture adds to what was previously a very meaningful spiritual holiday. And I thought, you and I, need to take Thanksgiving back. We need to take it back to what the pilgrims originally meant by it, what Washington originally meant by it, what Lincoln originally meant by it. And that is that it's a very, very spiritual time. And that for the Christian, it's a very, very meaningful time because we get to apply 1 Thessalonians 5.18 in everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We should be the most thankful people on planet earth because we have God and he's enough. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are enough and I thank you that your grace operating in our lives is, a, is an amazing thing. And God, you've taught us today that your grace means that you're sovereign. Your grace means that you're providential. Your grace means that you're in control even when things seem out of control. And God, that's all some of us need to hear today. Our lives are chaotic, uh, things seem hopeless. Like Paul the Apostle, we've had a real rough go of things. Like the pilgrims, we've had a rough go of things. But Lord, you have given us the example as well as the clear teaching that even in the midst of that, we can give thanks. It's a choice. Things could always be worse, but hope is still alive. Give us that hope, we pray. We will respond by choosing to be grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.